Buy low, sell high. Very easy to say, but not always so easy to do. For example, high interest rates are hurting the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices in a lot of markets are falling, even for many of the best assets. So it's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com pockets, fundrise.com pockets. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com flagship. This is a paid advertisement. This show is sponsored by Airbnb. Did you know that I turned one of my first homes into an Airbnb? It's true. And it even helped me get the extra income I needed to launch my real estate career. So if you want to try your hand at making even more income with your property, Airbnb is the place to be. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Top real estate investors love to talk about how they save so much on taxes. But how are they able to build rental property empires while skirting Uncle Sam? 1031 exchanges. 1031 exchanges allow you to defer capital gains taxes while you sell an investment property, exchanging your old property for a bigger, better one and avoiding the tax man while you do it. And that's where First American Exchange Company comes in. They're the leaders in 1031 exchanges. Whether you're a seasoned investor or just starting, First American Exchange can help you with simple rental property exchanges, complex commercial real estate investments, reverse exchanges, and more. Don't let your taxes eat into your profits. Visit First American Exchange Company at firstexchange.com or call them at 800-556-2520. That's firstexchange.com or 800-556-2520. Keep your money in your pocket and propel your portfolio further at firstexchange.com. First American Exchange Company does not provide tax or legal advice. Consult your financial, real estate, tax, or legal advisor about your circumstances. First American Exchange Company. Safe, smart, secure. Hey everyone, welcome to On The Market. I'm your host, Dave Meyer, with James Daner. Joining me today, James. What's up, man? Oh, just just hang out in the cold, rainy Seattle. Oh, oh. I think we're both, we're back to having the same weather. It's just like dark and rainy and, and I don't know. Got my space heater up my toes, yep. Did you know that Amsterdam rains like significantly more than Seattle? I was explaining that to my wife when we were trying to plan our, our <laughs> vacation out there. <laughs> She's like, no way. <laughs> yeah. No, but it's like April to like, uh, like August is super nice. So it'll be fine. It's just the whole winter. But um, man, we had a long episode, long interview today. So let's do it. We're just going to talk quickly. But we have Ashley Wilson, who uh, is a incredible multifamily investor on today. And just want to like uh, just give a quick warning, not warning, just disclaimer here that if you're like, this is more of an advanced episode, I think, right? Like if you're not, if you've never heard of multifamily or don't know that much about it um you can we do ashley does a great job of explaining things but there's a lot of advanced concepts in here that 
Honestly, I love this. I think this is one of my favorite episodes ever, um, but just wanted to give a heads up that there are some like new terms that you might not have heard um, that we go over here. Yeah, Ashley is one of the brightest people I know in this space, and she will educate you beyond belief. And I mean, even for me, I got a little bit lost at a couple points in it. So, Oh, dude, she was dropping bombs, dropping knowledge on it. But I think it's super important, like uh, what what she's talking about, just market conditions. She offers a really like concrete examples of like what she thinks is going to happen in the multifamily market and why, and gives like really good examples of, of backing up some things you James have been talking about some trends you've been seeing over the last couple of months. Yeah. She's just a very talented operator that knows the nuts and bolts of her business. And she just broke it down. And I think the serious operators out there are seeing the writing on the wall for the sloppy operators, but she's, One of my favorite people to talk to. Totally. If you're interested in multifamily commercial or just want to learn a little bit about it, this is a must listen to episode. This is just so much good information in that. So uh, we're going to take a quick break. And after that, we're going to bring on Ashley Wilson. This show is sponsored by Airbnb. Did you know that a long time ago before I ever started my real estate business, I turned one of my first primary residences into an Airbnb? And that's the extra income that I needed from Airbnb that gave me the confidence to go out and work for myself and eventually quit my nine to five job. And now I have dozens of Airbnbs all over the country. I've even partnered up with the old David Green on a recent property in Scottsdale to take our portfolio to the next level. And of course, we host it on Airbnb. But you don't need to be a full-time real estate investor to start on Airbnb. As a matter of fact, I was self-managing 10 properties while working my 9-to-5 job, so I know anybody can do it. Think about it this way. You're looking for extra income and going on a vacation. Wouldn't it be great to rent out your space and let your property pay for itself while you're gone? I did this one time. I pitched my wife and my roommate because we were house hacking on the idea of renting out our home, and it paid for all of our expenses on a trip to Mexico City. So go and give it a try. It might just change your life just like it did mine. And I really do mean that. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games. All right, Ashley Wilson, co-founder of Bar Down Investments, best-selling author of The Only Woman in the Room, Knowledge and the Inspiration from 20 Women Real Estate Investors, and of course, an active member of the Real Estate Invest Her community. Ashley, welcome to On the Market. Thank you so much for having me. Well, I just read your official bio, but can you give (laughs) us in your own words a a bit of uh, your background and history in real estate investing? Absolutely. So I started uh, learning about real estate in 2007. My now husband introduced me to it. So I'm really blessed that he kind of gave me the first sip of the Kool-Aid, so to speak. Um, Started listening to Bigger Pockets and being involved in the community in 2007. We made our first purchase in 2009 of a single family rental. I've house hacked short-term rental, long-term rental of single uh, residential properties. I've done flipping, high-end flipping and, um, you know, traditional um, 
flipping. And then I transitioned to commercial real estate in 2018 and have not looked back. So I'm in commercial real estate right now, specifically in multifamily. That's amazing. And uh, you and James, I learned, met, did you guys meet at, do I have this right? At Brandon's Maui Mastermind? Is that right? Yeah, we did. I um, am so blessed to have been invited to the event, but more importantly, I'm so blessed to have met James and met a lot of different people. They're incredible people that I now are, you know, my closest friends, including James. So really, really excited, um, you know, that we're now on this podcast together. I was very jealous. James was telling me everyone who was out there was like the Avengers. It was like all of like the greatest <laughs> real estate investors like meeting at once. I was like, damn, I wish I was there. Um, <laughs> it, it was like the Avengers, but I will say Ashley and Kyle, her husband, are two of the most favorite people I met there. Like there's there's definitely like a little small group that I talk to most and, and they are part of that for sure. Couldn't agree more. Super stoked we met each other. Awesome. Well, now you know the history between Ashley and James, but let's let's jump into this mar- multifamily market. You're obviously an expert in in everything having to do with sponsoring, syndications, and multifamily. So, can you just give us like a quick read on what you're experiencing in the multifamily market right now? Chaos. No, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> <laughs> All right. Po- podcast <laughs> over. <laughs> was not, that wasn't the answer you were looking for. Um, <laughs> so multifamily has had kind of a hectic um, past two years, um, all starting with COVID and I think a lot of people across all real estate asset classes, but specifically in multifamily, a lot of people got gun shy at the beginning of of COVID and they really didn't know how the market would respond um, because they really didn't know, um, you know, consumer sentiment, um, which is translation of tenants would respond and how rents would um, not only um, grow or compress, but also um, the ability to pay. I think there was uh, a lot of sensitivity around um, employment and uh, tenants being able to maintain income to be able to pay their rents. And then as owners, how we would be able to continue to um, keep operating the properties. So uh, fortunately, there was a lot of um, government programs, both at a federal level, local level, um, and then also some charitable organizations that stepped up and provided some assistance along this past two-year runway. But uh, what we actually saw was, I think, the opposite of what most people predicted. And I think that was in large part because just the abundance of stimulus that was thrown at this sector. And um, what we saw you know, firsthand, as well as I look at national metrics all the time, um, we saw a higher than uh, normal collected versus bill rate across multiple um, markets. And that's because of all of these different assistance programs stepping up and not only paying one or two months, but also paying uh, six months out uh, for tenants that were in um, really difficult situations, Um, loss of jobs, you know, um, being the number one uh, reason and Probably number two um, is more tied to um, family dynamics with respect to how COVID was impacting their family and, uh, you know, whoever was the breadwinner. So 
um, that definitely played a, a toll as well. So what ended up happening, because multifamily, the most traditional way in which multifamily properties are evaluated is called the NOI approach, what essentially happened is the income grew. And the income grew at a faster rate than the expenses grew, because at that time, initially, we didn't even though we had chain supply issues, it wasn't impacting multifamily upfront. It actually had a little bit of a lag effect. So we saw it later, you know, when we look at development and if you, I know I'm going kind of all over the place here, but I'm trying to paint a picture, the overall economy, we already have a shortage of housing supply. So when you look at supply and demand, um, the supply was shut off with not only federal, um, mandates of supply being shut off when uh, contractors were forced to shut down for that period of time, but also in terms of government agencies approving permits to construct new properties. In turn, what happened is, you know, we're shutting off the supply, then we're left with whatever supplies available on the market. A lot of people were, um, you know, forced into situations of renting with the stimulus, we're growing the income, but we're not also um, seeing that expense growth. Then the tailwind was the expense growth. So we started to see expense growth kind of come into play. But in terms of initially, when you're looking at income growth and you're looking at the NOI approach, which is the way in which you evaluate, the most traditional way in which you evaluate the valuation of a multifamily property in terms of what you pay, you look at it typically on a trailing basis. So by the time of multifamily transactions, if we look at it through the tail of um, 2021, we saw Q3, Q4, um, and then spill into 2022 in respect of Q1 and Q2, having these record-setting uh, transactions in multifamily. Uh, one example, one um, you know specific data point is in 2022 in Q1, I just posted an article about it. It's not like I memorize all this stuff all the time, but I think it was 63... <laughs> I was pretty impressed. I was like, man. <laughs> walking robot. <laughs> $63 billion in transaction volume in Q1 of 2022 across the nation, which is the second largest volume of transactions that have occurred in multifamily history. So I think with the first being in 2000, um, if I remember correctly, I forget which quarter. But the point remains the same, which is that all of a sudden we have this huge volume of transactions occurring that we weren't seen prior to that. So now we're in a situation where a lot of people were selling at top dollar and also the volume of transactions was super high. Lenders were really happy about it because they were essentially achieving their um their placing of capital metrics, you know, the the goals that they have to hit each quarter. By the end of Q2, they were already hitting their goal for that year through almost Q4. So they only needed to transact a little bit more through Q3 and Q4 to hit their or their metrics for transaction volume. So in terms of, you know, where they wanted to place their capital coupled with the fact that, you know, the Fed interest rate hikes and how that impacts uh multifamily, that kind of caused a slowdown. Um but on the other hand, we now have all this 1031 money. So the 1031 money is now circulating, which is causing properties to still transact at a very high price point because of the fact that people would rather buy a property and even overpay for a property. Sometimes I've heard, you know, from personal context of mine, they would overpay by $4 million just not to have a $5 million tax hit. So because of that, 
And I see James shaking his head there. But <laughs> honestly, I agree with James on that. I think that's crazy that, you know, people are doing that. But what ends up happening is then you don't see the compression on the cap, um, excuse me, not compression, expansion on the cap rates that you really should see. Because expansion on the cap rates obviously translates into a lower price point and vice versa. So what we should be seeing is a lower price point on these properties with expansion of cap rates, but really we're we're not seeing it and we're seeing a little bit, but not as much. And it's only being impacted due to the interest rate, not the cap rates, which is kind of a little bit unique um, situation. So when I said it's a little bit chaotic, um, I I jokingly said that, but I, I do see indicators that um, lend itself to chaos. You know, why are people overpaying? Should they be overpaying? I personally don't believe that you should ever overpay. I don't typically think that there's a good justification for that, but that is honestly what we're seeing. Everyone said it was multifamily madness in Q1, but I would say it's more, um, you know, the fallout of that madness that we saw um, is what we're seeing today. Yeah, and it's crazy that 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 point that you just brought up about the 1031 exchange that that like I feel like that is starting to dry up a little bit in the current market. Like it's the, the 1031s are start, you know, they already sold off the property. They had a certain amount of time to reload that money in. It's definitely starting to to slow down. But yeah, that is a huge mistake I was watching for the last 24 months. Like people were overpaying just to defer taxes. But if you're going to lose that position or the gain down the road, it doesn't matter. You're just losing the position. And it, uh, someone told me, I remember I was trying to do a 1031 exchange about five years ago and I was doing six properties or no, three properties. And I had up a couple during that time and I was trying to find the next replacement property and I could not find anything. And I, yeah, how I buy is deep value add buy. I want walk in margins, walk in equity. And I was going to buy a property that did not meet my buy box typically. And I was talking to one of my clients who's a financial planner and, and he, and he literally just stopped me and he goes, have you lost your mind? He's like, why? Like, what is wrong with you? I'm like, what do you mean? I'm like, I'm deferring these taxes. I'm saving these monies. I'm going to increase my cash flow." He's like, yeah, but you do what you do. What are you doing? You're, you're re he's like that. He, and he, he mentioned to me, he goes, there's two things that put people in bankruptcy a thinking you have FOMO, where you you you're that you're missing out and you're leaving too many, uh, or, or that you're not getting uh, that you're going to miss that return, and two that you're trying to defer taxes. At some point, you got to eat the taxes. And I remember I ate three hundred fifty grand in taxes. I blew up the exchange and just reset my basis at that point. But that's been this greed of what's going on. There's so much money getting pumped in. People made so much. They don't want to pay the tax, but then they buy a bad deal, and it's a huge mistake, and it, it it ends up in the long run hurting you more than just paying the tax. Just just let me. I just want to explain for a minute what's what you guys are talking about. Just the phenomenon here is that basically a ten thirty one exchange. If do, if you don't know what that is, is if you sell an investment property, you can take the profit that you earn and reinvest it into a like kind property without paying any capital gains. You're basically deferring the capital gains till some other time. But I think what if I'm picking you up right. What what sort of happened over the last couple of years is people would sell. They were trying to sell, often trying to sell at the top or take advantage of this appreciation. But then when they went to go and find that replacement property, they weren't finding a good enough, they weren't finding a deal with good fundamentals. But when you do a 1031 exchange, you only have 45 days to find that replacement property. So people are often get desperate and make bad decisions, right? Is that basically 
summary of what you're talking about? Absolutely. And I think you see that more and more when the volume of transactions is so high. So I think that's what we were seeing this year more than previous years is we had so much capital at play for people to 1031. Um, So the scale of which the transactions happened, the ripple effect was there was more 1031 money at play. And so you're saying it sponsors 1031 money. And so they're selling a multifamily asset and then they are trying to purchase another multifamily asset or is it, you know, the LPs in these deals are also having 1031 money and that's also uh, contributing to it? It's not just syndicators. It can be private owners. It can be REITs. It can be, um, you know, private equity firms. It's it's really um, everyone across the board can benefit from this um, tax incentive. So I personally saw it across the board. I didn't see it just limited to syndicators trying to reinvest um, 1031. In fact, if anything, it's actually more difficult. I have personally witnessed for syndicators to, to do something like this because it's just a little bit more complicated. There's more hair on the process in terms of the actual overall structuring, um, how the PPM was originally worded, how many LPs you have and whether or not they all buy into it. Um, there are work workarounds, excuse me. I am not a lawyer, so I won't pretend to know the answer, even though I've been told what I think the answer is. Um, so just consult with your lawyer if you are interested in, in trying to figure out a workaround there. But ultimately, um, the people that I've seen do it the most are really private owners. But either way, it doesn't matter whether it's private owners, syndicators, private equity firms, REITs, the impact it has on the market is massive. So it it really, you know, these individuals are doing it, but overall it's impacting everyone is really kind of the takeaway message. Yeah. Hey, David Green on the, on the bigger pockets real estate show has been talking about this in the single family space for a while. I suspect where he is, I'm sure it's pretty common, especially in the, in the Bay area. Um, but it's interesting cause I hadn't really thought about how that impacts the multifamily space. You always know, when the market's getting juiced up a little bit, because I would get phone calls from commercial brokers. And they're like, hey, I got a 1031 exchange buyer. We will buy anything. It was like <laughs> if, 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 if a broker landed that 1031 exchange buyer, they knew it was a done deal, right? Yep. Like they're like, what do you got? We're just going to get the deal done. I'm going to rip my check. And it was it was like, that's what the people are in the that's constant. Right. Yo, the, the, they got to buy something. What do you got? Just give me what. And it's like, uh, I'll sell you this. <laughs> like we sold a couple of our properties because we got cold call with 1031 exchange buyers. And they're like, we'll pay you this. And we're like, you just find like the biggest turd house. You have a listing contract for <laughs> You're just like, here you go. Yeah, here you go. It was like, but we got, we got paid well. I love 1031 exchange buyers. They, they they pay very good money for your stuff. The crazy thing about 1031 buyers to, or brokers, when a broker lands one, to your point, James, like they don't tell you the buyer's buy box. They just tell you how much money they have to 1031. That's my favorite part about it. <laughs> is they're like, this is how much we have to 1031. Do you have a deal that fits that criteria? You, It could be in Timbuktu for all the broker cares about. Like, the broker just wants to place the capital because they're like foaming at the mouth for the transaction. And it, it's astonishing to me that it's not like, okay, well, it has to be, you know, uh, uh, built in 
2015 or, you know, 2015 or newer or something like that. They'd give you no criteria except how much money that the buyer has to 1031. This is how much I can deploy. Yeah. Let's get it done. (laughs) Let's get it done. (laughs) Crazy. Send over the contract. (laughs) It's a great place to be. Um, Ashley, you mentioned about uh, a few things about cap rates that I'd love to ask you some more about. But uh, for those people listening who aren't as familiar with commercial real estate and cap rates, can you just explain the role that cap rates play in valuations and in multifamily uh, investing? Cap rates, the best and the easiest, most simplistic way to understand it is actually something my husband told me when he was first teaching me about cap rates. And that is essentially if you were to purchase the property in cash, what your cash flow would be after all your expenses were paid. So if you're buying a five cap market and you were um, you purchased something at $100,000, just for simplicity's sake, you would receive 5000 annually in cash flow. That's essentially what a cap rate is in terms of how it is utilized with respect to multifamily and commercial real estate. It is used as a determinant to tell you the trading value across different assets. And it's supposed to take into consideration risk profile and be able to go across different um, uh, investments. So Say, for example, you're comparing multifamily to self-storage. Well, let's say self-storage is, is a 10 cap and multifamily in the specific market, in the specific buy box you're buying it is at a five cap. You're getting less of a return when you purchase a multifamily property versus a self-storage because self-storage inherently has more risk. So that is kind of just high level what um, a cap rate is. In terms of how it's utilized to determine value um, with the NOI approach, which I mentioned previously, there's three ways in which multifamily properties are evaluated. One is the comparable sales approach and comparable sales approach. Most people already understand that conceptually because it's the way in which residential real estate is valued. So if you have a property adjacent to another property with similar specs, one property sells, most likely that other property will sell at a similar valuation, right? So if it sells for $300,000, it's a 2003 bedroom, two bath home on a half an acre. Um, Let's say hardy siding, two story um, with a detached two car garage. And you have the exact same thing. Um, Maybe it's even 1,950 square feet. You'll probably be able to sell that for 300,000. They're comparable. That's why it's called the comparable sales approach. With respect to the second way multifamily is evaluated, it's called a replacement value. So think of how an insurance adjuster would evaluate multifamily. So replacement value is based off of the replacement cost in which you would replace that same structure. The third approach, which is the most common way multifamily is evaluated on the purchasing side for buyers is called the NOI approach, which is you take your income minus your expenses, you annualize it, You divide it by the trading cap rate within that given market for that specific asset class. So there are different cap rates based off of markets and then also based off of different asset classes. So whether it's an A class, B class, C class property, you know, 2022 construction versus let's say a 1980s construction, those cap rates are going to vary. And then you come up with an evaluation. Um, A very simplistic way to determine how you add value to a property, a five cap is typically a multiplier of 20, 
well, it is a multiplier, not typically. It's a multiplier of 20. So it's a very easy way in which you can determine, okay, if I'm, you know, um, saving $100 a year, that's an added valuation of 100 times 20. So a $2,000 add on to the property evaluation. So you can see how the multiplier effect um, <clears throat> is great with value add properties, because if you add you know, $10 a unit across 100 units, you can see how that can have a massive impact on the overall evaluation of the property. So now kind of understanding that basic knowledge on, on those three approaches and knowing that the NOI approach is the one that is used, it's important to look at mathematically what those factors are that determine the value. So you have the income and the expense, which people can manipulate those as well. Um, income and expense are based off of operating income and operating expense. Um, but there are line items that are quote unquote below the line, which means below operating um, variables. So let's say, for example, you replace roofs. Replacing roofs is actually called a capital expense. Capital expense doesn't get calculated into the valuation because it's considered a one time expense. Whereas if you do a roof patch, most operators would agree that the, a roof patch would fall as an operating expense under general maintenance. So that would impact your evaluation. People do, though, get creative. You can call it fraud. You can call it whatever you want. <laughs> <laughs> I'll throw around the F word. Um, and they can hide that below the line. So it looks like they're um, repair and maintenance is lower than what it should be. So the more experienced you are in multifamily, the more you can gauge, okay, their R&M costs, repairs and maintenance is really low for this vintage property. A typical and the average expense ratio in across the country, now it varies by area, so don't you know take this to the bank, but typically an A-class property typically has around a 30 to 35 expense ratio. And then every... Um, decade kind of adds a couple percentage points. So like 1980s vintage, you're typically stabilized. These are all stabilized um, <clears throat> ratios. Uh, stabilized, excuse me, for 1980s, you'll probably be around a 50, anywhere up to a 60% expense ratio. So knowing all these things, um, you can see that the income and expense can be manipulated. But the other thing that can be manipulated is um, cap rates. So one of the things we just talked about was the whole uh, history of the past two years of how cap rates or how, how um, the multifamily sector has been a little bit chaotic. And the thing with cap rates are cap rates are determined by historic transactions. So in terms of setting the cap rate, it's based off of transactions that have actually occurred. So in Q1 and Q2, when I was talking about having all of these you know, record setting transactions occurring, obviously the cap rates were compressed. The cap rates were compressed because we we're seeing transactions at the highest or second highest rate that we'd seen of all time. So when that funnels down, then obviously when we get to a period and let's say, for example, we have a halt in transactions, people are really kind of guessing on the cap rates, but they're using historic sales to forecast where they should actually be at. With respect to the 1031 money circulating, if people are overpaying for properties, then we're not seeing the cap rate expansion that we think we should see. Because really, property values have come down, um, but cap rates aren't truly reflective of that because 1031 money is 
making it look like the market is doing better than it is because people are overpaying for properties. So that's part of the issue. If you said that property values have come down, but like, have they actually, or are you just saying that they should be coming down? Like if, cause cap rates should be declining. And if NOI stays constant, they should be, or excuse me, cap rates are expanding. NOI stays constant, then property values should be going down. Right. But is that actually happening or is that sort of just what you would expect to be happening? Well, it's my belief that it should be happening because when you look at interest rates, and we haven't really talked about this yet, but when you look at interest rates, interest rates, there's um, an inversion that just occurred, right? So previously, we saw interest rates um, lower than cap rates. And what what um you know when you invest in multifamily one of the things you're investing on is that spread between the interest rate and the cap rate but because we're seeing interest rates let's say for an agency loan at 6% bridge loan anywhere from 7 to 8% but you're seeing cap rates of 5% you're seeing an inversion you're seeing interest rates actually higher than cap rates so in terms of you know where they should be at today, there should be some more expansion on the cap rates. And I think that there was, I think 1031s created like a fallacy of what cap rates are. I also think with the chain supply issues, um, and I know this is kind of a divergence of what we're talking about now, but I do think it impacts pricing. Um, you know, I'm a firm believer that you also have to consider replacement value. I don't think that evaluation just should solely be off of NOI. I think you should also consider replacement value because if you can't build the same product today um, for the price that they're asking for, then it, you know, there's a trickle effect that will eventually happen. There's lag time, but we had a lot of chain supply issues. I mean, lumber was through the roof. It's definitely come down significantly, but we still have chain supply issues and, and shortage of materials and shortage of labor, which is impacting the cost to build. So when you're in a situation where you you know are buying a 1980s vintage property at 150 a door, but to rebuild that, it would cost you 195, how do you truly evaluate it? I'm not pitching for you pay 195 for it because that's what it would cost to replace. But I'm just saying that in terms of trying to determine the value, just going off the NOI approach alone, I don't know if that's necessarily the answer. That is one of my favorite metrics to buy on. Can I buy well below replacement costs? I feel like when I'm uncertain on a deal, like any type of deal, multifamily, single family, whatever it is, if I'm buying at tw- like. 30% off replacement costs. I feel pretty good about that deal. Like in the long term, it's it usually clicks out. Yep. I I completely agree with you. And I actually just recently was talking about this on LinkedIn and I got some, you know, obviously there are some people who feel uh differently about that than you and I feel. Um and they're they're proponents of, well, it still needs to make money. It's still you you still need to to operate as a business and you're buying the business. I completely agree with all of that. What I'm saying, and I think you're probably saying as well, is you can't just look at it solely off of the business. You can't, um, it is in a very important factor, but you can't discount replacement value. You can't discount replacement value, just like you can't discount location. You know, you can't discount path of progress. 
all of those variables come into play on evaluation. And you and I might have a different opinion of how much we push or pull back. But my whole point is, you know, gone are the days that you just look at a trailing 12 and say, okay, that's what I'm going to offer and be done with it. Yeah, and that's a big mistake people make is they, they want to stick to one straight way of underwriting things. And that's not the truth for anything. You got you have to look at all those little there's little data points everywhere. And you got to take them all, put them in a bucket, figure out what makes sense to you and how you want to evaluate it. And that will like that will help you make a decision. And that's really important in today's market because it's hard to know whether you're buying a good deal or not. And so you have to look at all the factors and then that will help you make that comfortable decision whether to pull the trigger or not. But yeah, I mean, I love buying below replacement if I can't build it for it because building apartments is expensive. It, going back to the supply and demand conversation we were having earlier, the reason the supply is low and it's going to be continue to be low is builders are bailing out of these big complexes. They waited two to three years to get their permits. It took too long. Their build costs are 20 to 30% higher than they're anticipating, maybe even 40%. And their cost of money is now up 40% and they're toast. And now those units are never coming to market because they're getting sold and repurposed at that point. Yep. I completely agree with you. James, are you seeing cap rates sticking lower than you would expect in your market as well? Not Well, there's the sellers asking for it, but those they're not transacting. It's uh, we... I mean, we're, we're definitely buying, we're seeing good buys. Like in the last four weeks, we have, I mean, we closed on a big uh, deal up in Everett. We Our stabilized cap rate 6.1. Couldn't get that. No way we were getting that the last couple of years. Um, we have another one that we're looking at in West Seattle. That's, I mean, the, the deals are out there, but it's a matter of also making sure that it's the right buy for yourself. Um, we're seeing people negotiate pretty rapidly up here. Um, there, there's definitely a, a huge demand fall in Seattle, and, which is great because that means we're going to step up into it. But um, it, things are definitely transitioning. It could keep slipping too. So like, you know, maybe a 6.1 cap today, maybe I want a 7.1 cap. I don't know. Like that's w- what we're trying to figure out. And that's why it's really important to know those extra metrics. Like the one that we got a 6.1 cap, we're, we bought it at least 20% below replacement cost. No way we're getting that built for that we paid like under 200 a door they usually trade at 300 door up there so it's like all these different categories are you know that's why it's so important to know these extra little factors in your underwriting so ashley given all all the the market conditions that you're seeing and sort of it sounds like you believe overinflated prices at this point how how are you handling that in your business are you sort of taking a pause or are you still active bidding on deals? We're actively bidding on deals. I don't think I would ever pause, um, ever. (laughs) There's to me, there's always a good time to buy. It's always a good time to buy, but the way in which, um, we evaluate deals hasn't changed in terms of, um, we're sticking to, you know, our guns on how we evaluate deals. Uh, we're conservative. Um, in terms of the actual numbers, they've changed, you know, in forecasting interest rates and cap rates on sale. Um, but, you know, with respect to general underwriting practices, we have not changed. We have stayed very consistent on um, being conservative in our approach, forecasting out what we think the interest rates will be um, upon exit. Um, a lot of a lot of the. Um, the uh, interest rate issues right now in today's 
market, um, especially on the commercial side, has to do with volatility and uncertainty. So lenders with respect to how they're pricing interest rates, they're price, pricing them based off of a lot of uncertainty. So once you know the Fed hikes kind of stabilize and it's not directly correlated, but it does impact uh, the commercial rates, we're going to see lenders feel more comfortable adjusting the spread over SOFRA and being more favorable on the terms. Like for example, um, LTV, you know, they're a little gun shy on LTV. They want owners to have more equity in the deal and they don't want to carry so much of that risk on, on the deal. But um, I think once that stabilizes, which I hope we see um, in Q1 or Q2 of next year at the latest, I think uh, lenders will feel more confident, um, you know, coming down off their rates a bit. Yeah, and just just to uh, to to further that, I I don't know personally as much about commercial loans, but I was reading something earlier that said that the spread right now between uh, the ten year Treasury and a residential uh, rate is almost three hundred basis points right now. So basically three percent bond yields, ten year Treasury is about four percent right now. Residential rates owner-occupied, about 7%. Normally, it's 1.8%. So like this is exactly what you're talking about. Banks, they don't know what to think, right? Like There's so much volatility, they're nervous. So they're just like we talk about, they're padding their margins, right? Like They want to make sure that they are going to earn a good interest rate, regardless of what the Fed decides to do. And to your point, I think there's a lot of people who are expecting mortgage rates, even if the Fed keeps raising rates, might at least moderate or actually come down in 2023 because that spread might actually decrease back to the historical levels that they're normally at. Yeah, I think the spread is widened just because of the uncertainty, but that's something they can control. So, you know, to your point, um, in commercial, it's about 200 basis points, 200 bips. So in terms of that spread, we could see that spread come down once there there's more certainty and comfort in, in in the risk profile of where um, the ten year treasury um, you know is paced, so yeah, I, I asked you that question because I ask everyone that question how they're adjusting to it, and the thing I love about talking to everyone, and James gets to do this too, is just like. Every single experienced investor is like, yeah, of course I'm still bidding. Like, of course I'm still doing stuff right now. And I just hope people listening to this who are, are worried about this market, which is understandable. Like there is more market risk right now than there has been in a long time. Um, but just listen to Ashley and James' advice here. It's like, if you just keep underwriting the same way, you behave conservatively. Like there's no reason why you can't participate in this market. Yeah, go back to your underwriting you were doing two to three years ago. Like I, I was talking to my sales guys about this the other day. I'm like, no, you guys were writing offers. They're like, well, the, the deals are too good. It's like, no, no, these were the deals we were doing three years ago. They just got brainwashed by this last market yep. and what the yield and the profit expectations be. And it's so now it's like everyone's just resetting. The banks are resetting. Everybody's re, like the banks are just getting their spread. We're trying to get like our margins in there. And it's it is balancing out, though. I'm noticing it's balancing a lot quicker than I would think. Ashley, I want to switch gears and ask you one question. Like, obviously, as a you know, as an operator, as an investor who's active in these deals, um, you've shared some really helpful insights for us. What about for people like me who invest passively into syndications? Like, what advice do you have for people who are interested in being an LP 
for investing in these type of market conditions. So one of the things that I actually spoke about at Bigger Pockets Conference, um, I had a, a talk on the um, speculation and manipulation of cap rates. It was called the Cap Rate Con. And one of the things I pull, one of the things I like that name, very catchy. <laughs> Thank you. Um, one of the things I did during that speech is I pulled the audience. So there are about three or 400 people in the audience. And I said, how many of you passively have invested in the past, you know, two to three years in a multifamily syndication? And I would say about 75% of the audience raised their hands. And then I said, how many of you, um, did well and over those years, if it sold and um, it first had to sell. So we had a drop off about 50%. So about 150 people still had their hands up. And then I said, how many, how many people did well? And everyone had their hands up. And then I said, okay, out of all of the people, you know, who have their hands up still, how many of you asked for a detailed breakdown on the original projected exit cap rate the original projected NOI performance and the actual, and only two people had their hands raised. So the takeaway is that when things are doing well, you you don't bother the operators. You don't ask for the financials. You don't actually prove up their operations. You never verify that they uh, were able to exit successfully based off of what they did, not what the market did. And one of the metrics that I had up on this um, speech as well was a sensitivity analysis table. So ever since we got in multifamily, we have presented this sensitivity analysis table to on every single offering we've ever done um, to all of our investors. And what it is, is on the y-axis, it is the cap rates by 25 BIPs. Um, and then on the x-axis, it is the um, percentage of hitting NOI. So dead center, it's 0%, meaning you hit your projected NOI. And then it goes off in either direction at 2% intervals. So you overperform your NOI by 2% or you underperform your NOI by 2%. And then on the y-axis, you know, you have that 0.25 basis points. And what we show to our investors is the risk associated that that's the intention of the sensitivity analysis table is the risk associated with investing in general. So, you know, if we hit our NOI dead on, let's say, and we have a four and a half exit cap, let's say, for example, we're projecting a 14 IRR, right? But if we underperform our NOI, but we still hit a four and a half cap rate, it might go down to a 12 and a half IRR, let's say, right? So what I showed on this table was that when the cap rate compressed to three and a half, right? So we had a hundred uh, basis points difference on the cap rate and people underperformed their projected NOI by 8%, they still achieved over a 20 IRR. That's crazy. <laughs> but that being said, Today, if you look at the cap rate expansion, so if you take a four and a half and you go to five and a half, right? So 100 basis points expansion, you have to overperform your NOI by 8% to just get a 12 and a half IRR. Hmm. So the expansion of cap rate actually translates into you having to better perform on your NOI than initially projected. So the takeaway message there is twofold. One is, first of all, when you're vetting people as a passive investor and they're they're spouting off all these 
wonderful performance metrics that they've been able to achieve over the last three to five years, dive into it a little bit further. Ask for original projections versus actual, both on the NOI and the cap rate, because then you can do the calculation very simplistically to figure out what, you know, if the operations were the reason that there was success. And then also ask for a sensitivity analysis table on the current investment that you're considering and how the impact of cap rate expansion will have on your actual returns. Um, I think we're in a situation right now, maybe um, the cap rate expansion three to five years won't be, hopefully won't be 100 basis points from where it is today, but you never know. So just educate yourself and be prepared um, for what those returns would look like and make sure that you're comfortable with those returns. What's that old saying? Uh, you never go skinny dipping when the tide's going out going or out. whatever yep. that is. Like, I feel like this is where we're going to see whether operators were good operators or not. I, I mean, because including it, it was all asset classes. Like it got so juiced up that everyone was hitting their metrics, hitting their profits. And now, like as things compress down, like you have to operate this as a business and and operate it well or you will not make money doing this. And uh, I think it, it's going to be a little scary because we're going to see a lot of these. Yeah, they they have false success and then they reload into something else. And because they had that success, they went a little bit more aggressive on the next one. And we're going to see we're going to see a little bit of issues coming out of this. Um, I, I think the IRs are going to fall fall quite a bit on you, people that did not perfect their business. It was just kind of like they bought this thing. They got it somewhat stabilized in an inefficient matter, but they still hit it. And that they're not going to be able to. You have to implement the right plan and really dig down on your core metrics now to to make these profitable. In 2019, I was on a panel at Dave Van Horn's Mid-Atlantic Summit, and I was on the panel with um, Brian Burke, Paul Moore, um, Matt Faircloth, the fourth person's escaping me right now, but I will remember in a second. Anyway, long story short is I said that um, in this business, operations are very important, but in a downturn, operations are the most important. And I have stood by that quote um, forever. That is my personal belief. And I think we're seeing it right now. I also think that a lot of people's business models over, you know, the 10 year track and multifamily has been this run up that we've seen has been solely based off of even though they don't say it, they're buying for appreciation A and B buying for fees. So in terms of when they're syndicating, they're so focused on acquisitions and case in point, to be honest with you, and I'm not trying to pitch this at all, but when I first got in, started in multifamily, I really struggled to find resources where I could find education. So I contemplated going to these different coaching programs. So I vetted all the coaching programs available at the time. And it, what dawned on me was the fact that everyone taught you how to find and fund the deals, but no one actually taught you how to operate them. No one, not a single coaching program. So we have a coaching program today that literally that was like that was a deal breaker for me if we didn't spend the majority of the time of the coaching program focused on operations, because it's like it's kind of reminds me. And I know this is probably dark to say, but it kind of reminds me of, you know, September 11th when the terrorists learned how to 
you know, take off the plane and fly it, but they didn't focus on landing it. You have to focus on, you know, the entire process. And when someone's not focused on the entire process, that should shoot up a red flag. That's phenomenal advice. 100% agree with that. Really good point. Yeah. So do you think, you know, James said on a show recently that he thinks we're going to see a lot of defaults in the multifamily space over the next couple of years because people maybe were too greedy, bought too high, and we're going to start to see, like you said, the tide's going to start coming out. We're going to see you swimming naked. Uh, do you do you agree with uh, with James's uh, assessment? I am foaming at the mouth to answer this because the answer is simply yes, and it's not only for the reasons that you just mentioned, but it's also because of how people bought. So it's not about overpaying; it's about what they did with debt. So what they did with debt is they got variable rates without securing rate caps. And a lot of people are in positions right now where A, they can't afford the rate cap. So rate cap rates and, you know, truth be told, we're in a situation with our rate cap being astronomical. And I'm happy to share the information just for people to learn um, because it's definitely a mistake we made. Now, fortunately, we also um, have a lot of reserves and we we counted on some of it, but we didn't, honestly, we didn't count to the extreme that it's at. But let me just kind of give perspective here on why I think this is going to be an issue. We purchased a property in September of 2020, and we did a variable interest rate with a one strike for a three-year term. We paid 30000 for that rate cap. In um, October of 2021, our lender told us they were gonna change the accrual rate. So it was a three-year rate cap and similar to insurance and taxes, uh, lenders accrue for the next rate cap that you're going to purchase uh, with your mortgage. So they were accruing at a rate of 1,100 a month up until October of 2021. In October of 2021, I received an email saying that they were going to adjust our rate cap accrual to $303. And I said to our accountant, that concerns me because the rates are not going to be this low come the time we need to buy the rate cap. So we can pay the 303 to the lender, but I want to accrue on a separate line item for the balance because this is very concerning. In March of 2022, we got a letter from the lender saying that they had just done another audit and they they were going to change our rate cap accrual. So this isn't our mortgage, this is just for the rate cap accrual for 9,200 a month. And I was like, holy crap, that's crazy. Okay, well that I thought was crazy, but like life, it's all about perspective. So three weeks ago, I got another letter from the lender that said, we just did another audit and we are going to adjust your rate cap accrual to 54 thousand dollars a month for the rate cap and the reason why they are adjusting it so let me just talk about what what how rate caps are set so we purchased the rate cap for thirty thousand dollars it's a three-year rate cap at a one strike i get an email every single morning between 4 and 5 a.m and it lists out what it would cost if we repurchase that rate cap today it is now around five hundred dollars to $520,000 to buy that same rate cap. So a couple things. One is that now I have to um, accrue 
based off of the remaining term that I have left, but it's it's compressed to account for you know the deficit that we were accruing at. So that's that's the one issue. The second issue is that we're in a situation where we have reserves. We um, you know have we had factored in a larger purchase on the rate cap when we went to buy it, but we didn't factor into five hundred and thirty thousand. Fortunately, we have reserves and we're under budget on other items that we can pull, you know, from different money. But now this is cash we don't have access to. So we're in negotiations with the lender and the lender has communicated to us that we're by far the highest change in rate cap accrual, probably because we went with the 1% strike. And you have to go back to your loan terms to see if there's ways that you can renegotiate what they're accruing for, whether it be the term or the the rate, you know, the 1% strike. So there's room for us to have a discussion, which they're, we're in the process of now, and hopefully we can come to some sort of agreement. But what in turn that has done is that has put us in a situation where, you know, we're telling our investors until we have this figured out. We want to put distributions on hold just till we have this figured out because it's the responsible thing to do. Now, do I ever want to do that? No, but I would rather do that than later say, oh, yeah, well, I didn't tell you about this thing or I did tell you about this thing, but I didn't tell you how it impacted you. And now we have to do a capital call. So sometimes having difficult conversations is not what operators even want to do. So what ends up happening is it gets too late in the process and then all of a sudden the property's in a situation where they're either on lockbox, they're on the watch list, or they're foreclosed on, and the passive investors have no idea that this even occurred. And I'm pretty sure if they were informed of the situation when it occurred and you communicated to them what, you know, what outlook you had and what steps you were going to take, they would all be in agreement for conservative measures to be taken, um, especially if you attract the right investors, you know? So, um, we're in a situation where it's tough for us, but we're heavy focused on operations and, and we're you know, going to come out on the other side favorably. But how many other people are not in that situation, right? How many other people you know, didn't even factor reserves into when they purchased the property or aren't under budget on other projects or um, bought a rate cap without even thinking, okay, the lenders can audit it every six months and change the rate cap accrual rate. So I think to James' point, I think there's going to be a lot of people that we see when the tide goes out uh, who were swimming naked because they didn't factor these variables in. Yeah, we might see some saggy stuff out there. <laughs> <laughs> it's a... It could get that way. It could get I, I, you should see what the beaches are like here in the Netherlands. It's, that's cr- but what, good, de- good description of what's going on here. <laughs> yeah. This, I mean, what she just talked about is huge, right? Like, I mean, that that's a that's a big deal. And that's where things, you know, and 
you know, operators like Ashley, like she said, having that tough conversation is important. You like no one wants to do the responsible thing ever, right? Like I'd rather to be irresponsible for the rest of my life. It's a much easier, fun way to live. But like, it's like you're gonna have to have those conversations, and you got to address those and make it up. In to Ashley's point, the operations you have to figure out how to turn your units for less. You got to keep your units more full. You're they're gonna have to. Operators are really gonna have to excel to push through this little hump. You can push through that hump, but you're gonna have to perform well. Well, and to your point, James, like if if something like this pushes someone to say, "Oh, I gotta I gotta figure out a way where I can skim on operations." Well, if you never learned operations in the first place. Now you have a learning curve to contend with. Plus, then you have to figure out what you're going to change. And there's too much time that goes by, right? So between learning like what's actually going on at the property, I I talked to so many people that the thing that was so surprising to me when I first started in multifamily is I would talk to these people who had owned properties for 10 plus years and I would try to have a conversation with them about operations and they had no idea what was going on with the property. They're like, oh, the property management company handles this. I'm like, but you're you're responsible for the financials of that property and the performance and the business plan. How do they know how to pivot strategies? How do they know, you know, what your overall business plan is? Um, I mean, that's a whole separate conversation, but that's why I think most people turn to vertical integration. It's because it's actually a deficit of themselves because they lack communication with their property management company. Um, but case in point is they lack communication because they actually don't know what's going on. They never spent the time to realize like, what the property management company is can you know dealing with day to day coupled with how you then match your overall operations and your business plan together so i think that situation is going to be exacerbated in this environment 100% agree yeah that's that's great great insight uh i would love to keep talking about this but unfortunately we're we're Almost at the end here, but uh, Ashley, this has been so helpful. Thank you. If people want to learn more from you, where should they do that? If you're interested in becoming a passive investor, uh, Jay Scott and I have uh, bardowninvestments.com. That's our company. And then if you would like to be an active investor, you could also learn from us through apartmentaddicts.com, which is our coaching program. You can also follow me on Instagram at badashinvestor, which is B-A-D-A-S-H investor. Awesome. Well, Ashley, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate your time. Good to see you, Ashley. Great seeing you both. Thanks again. All right, James, that was incredible. I just learned so much. I think like I, I do listen to all the episodes, but I'm going to listen to this one like three or four times. I, I feel like she just dropped so much information I want to use in my personal investing. I'm going to need to listen to it three or four times. Because <laughs> of information where I'm like, at one point I was like, do I need to Google something real quick? Like I did, should have my search <laughs> bar open. <laughs> oh man, she, she's just so sharp. It knows everything. And uh, I just thought, her understanding of cap rates and cap rate expansion and, um, you know, what she was talking about, validating something you've been talking about where you think that there's going to be a lot of defaults in the multifamily space. Um, really interesting dynamics that are probably going to start playing out here in the next three to six months. Yeah. And she just, I mean, how she broke down the banking, the, the different ways to perform the deal, the operation side. I mean, she is just one. I mean, Ashley, I mean, I remember the first time I met her, we just kind of connected right away on work ethic because we could really see 
how much they care and passionate about her business. But she went over that in all of this today. And she broke it down to a next level to where, yes, I'm going to I'm gonna have to listen to this at least two or three times. Yeah, it was great. Well, we're going to get out of here because this was a long interview and don't want to keep anyone too long. But thank you, James, for joining us. And thank you all for listening. We really appreciate you. And we'll see you next time for On The Market. On The Market is created by me, Dave Meyer, and Kaylin Bennett. Produced by Kaylin Bennett. Editing by Joel Esparza and Onyx Media. Research by Pooja Jindal. And a big thanks to the entire Bigger Pockets team. The content on the show On The Market are opinions only. All listeners should independently verify data points, opinions, and investment strategies. The housing market is changing, and finding your way right now can be a bit tricky. There are rate shifts, there are confusing headlines, but at the end of the day, your goal hasn't changed. You probably still want financial freedom as much as ever. Well, the good thing is that experienced investors know it's not about trying to time the market. It's about the amount of time you have in the market. And if you're ready to get into real estate investing game, you can still do that, or you can take your game to the next level by finding an investor-friendly agent. With BiggerPockets Agent Finder, you can find the right agent in just a few minutes. You head over to biggerpockets.com deals, enter in some details about what you want, where you want to buy, and boom, you instantly get matched with an investor-friendly agent who fits the bill. These local market experts can help you navigate the neighborhoods, analyze the numbers, and take action with confidence once and for all. This free resource is only available at biggerpockets.com slash deals. Get an agent, get the deal, and get closer to financial freedom at biggerpockets.com slash deals. That's biggerpockets.com slash deals to find your investor-friendly agent today. The content of this podcast is for informational purposes only. Past performance is not indicative of future results, and all hosts and participant opinions are their own. Investments in any asset, real estate included, involves risk. Use your best judgment and consult with qualified advisors before investing. Only risk capital you can afford to lose. BiggerPockets LLC disclaims all liability for direct, indirect, consequential, or other damages arising from reliance upon information presented in this podcast.